evening will be in 1 Samuel 22. So may I invite you to turn there and follow along as we study this passage together. 1 Samuel 22. Saul is a man who has disobeyed God. He's lost God's favor. There will be no dynasty for his family. Another king will replace him who is not from his family and who will be better than him. But in Saul's mind, he cannot take that fate. He cannot take that end game. And so he is going to scheme and connive and cajole and squirm. And as we'll see tonight, he'll even murder in order to try to protect what he thinks that he deserves. Now, we think of the life of Saul, we should recognize how quickly things have changed because there was a time, if you remember, that Saul actually came to God humbly and acknowledged his weakness. He said, I am from the, the smallest of the tribes, and I'm from the smallest clan and the smallest tribe and the smallest family and the smallest clan, and I'm not anything significant. And yet, God, you are making me king. And early in his, in his reign, he chose to follow God, but things have changed very quickly. That power has actually corrupted Saul, hasn't it? That it, he, he got a taste of it and wanted, it, wanted more of it. And he can't stand the thought of having to give any of it up. How different would Saul's rule be if he continued to submit himself to God? When a wicked ruler doesn't get his way, there will be casualties until he gets what he wants. And here, for Saul, it's the priests of Nob, but, but for us in our day, maybe it's not real people that are dying necessarily, but, but there is going to be an ugly fight that goes on when someone loses their power. Someone who lusts for that power and cannot live without it. That's what Saul does for us. He helps us to, to recognize that, that, um, that when we go after something that is opposed to God, something that actually can be a gift from God, right? The throne was a gift from God. He, it, it can actually corrupt us because we're pursuing it for the wrong reason. Let me read our text for us this evening, 1 Samuel chapter 22, beginning in verse 6, and I'll read to the end of the chapter. This is the word of God. Then Saul heard that David and the men who were with him had been discovered. Now Saul was sitting in Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand, and all his servants were standing around him. Saul said to his servants who stood around him, Hear now, O Benjamites, will the son of Jesse also give to all you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? For all of you have conspired against me, so that there is no one who discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. And there is none of you who is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in ambush as it is this day. Then Doeg, the Edomite, who was standing by the servants of Saul, said, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, he acquired of the Lord for him. He gave him provisions, and he gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. Then the king sent someone to summon Ahimelech, the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's households. The priests who were in Nob, and all of them came to the king. 
Saul said, Listen now, son of a high tub. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. Saul then said to him, Why have you and the son of Jesse conspired against me, and that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him, so that he would rise up against me by lying in ambush as it is this day? Then Ahimelech answered the king and said, And who among all your servants is as faithful as David? Even the king's son-in-law, who is captain over your guard and is honored in your house. Did I just begin to inquire of God for him today? Far be it from me. Do not let the king impute anything to his servant or to any of the household of my father, for your servant knows nothing at all of this whole affair. But the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's household. And the king said to the guards who were attending him, Turn around and put the priests of the Lord to death, because their hand also is with David, and because they knew that he was fleeing and did not reveal it to me. But the servants of the king were not willing to put forth their hands to attack the priests of the Lord. Then the king said to Doeg, You turn around and attack the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned around and attacked the priests, and he killed that day eighty-five men who wore the linen ephod. And he struck Nob, the city of the priests, with the edge of the sword, both men and women, children and infants, also oxen, donkeys, and sheep. He struck with the edge of the sword. But one son of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. Then David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have brought about the death of every person in your father's household. Stay with me. Do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. For you are safe with me. The enemies of God attack without mercy. But God protects His people without fail. God is always faithful to protect His people. And that's one of the great truths that we even sang tonight, that God is with us. That He is our refuge and strength. And so while the enemies of God attack, God is there to protect us. So we're going to see two main points tonight, and they're right there in the theme of the passage. First, the enemies of God attacked without, attack without mercy. And then, second, God protects His people without fail. So first, the enemies of God attack without mercy. They attack the people of God without mercy, mercy verses 6-19. through 19. We need to get the setting of the story, what's going on here, and be reminded about what has taken place up until this point. Saul here is, in verse 6, having a cabinet meeting. He's the king of Israel. And he's there in his capital city in Gibeah, outside, underneath the tamarisk tree. And he's speaking with his trusted men. And he finds out that his number one enemy has been spotted. And so Saul appeals to his servants in three ways. First, on the basis of their family heritage. Notice verse 7. He says, Hear now, O Benjamites. Listen, we're all from the same family line. But David is not. He's from Judah. He's not one of us. And if you servants are going to be loyal to your family, then you'll be on my side. We are from Benjamin. So he appeals on the basis of family heritage. Second, he appeals on the basis of possessions and power in verse 
7, the second part says, Will the son of Jesse also give to all you fields and vineyards? Will he make you commanders? So he, he says, listen, is David really going to give you all these things? Notice he doesn't call him David. It's, it's like that, that person that you despise. You just can't even say their name. The person who's not to be named, right? Saul can't even say his name. He just calls him the son of Jesse. Listen, I've given you all these things. And you owe me. So don't, dis- don't, uh, don't betray me now. He also appeals to his servants on the basis of pity in verse 8. Notice the second part of the verse says, And there is none of you who is sorry for me and who discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in the ambush. So, so none of you have told me. You never, none of you have told me what's going on. You haven't disclosed any information. He's saying no one feels sorry for me. You don't tell me when someone's ready to attack, when they're conspiring against me. And so here we have Saul, his words just dripping with paranoia. He thinks that, that David is out to get him. And he mentions three main things here that he's concerned about. He, he mentions the covenant, a conspiracy, and secrecy. The covenant is seen there in the middle of verse 8. No, there is no one who discloses to me when my son makes a covenant. So he's saying, there is a covenant that's been made between David and Jonathan. Was that true? Yeah, there was a covenant, right? Chapter 18, verses 1 through 3. Chapter 20, verses 12 through 17. It's repeated. There was a covenant that David and Jonathan made. Now, what what Saul did was he he claimed that that this covenant had something to do with attacking Saul, right? And that was nothing. That had nothing to do with it. It was a covenant that was based on their friendship that, that, that David would care for Jonathan's family after Jonathan was after he after David became king. And so, yes, it's true they had a covenant, but, but Saul, because of his paranoia, right, saw that saw that they were trying to conspire against him. So then he has this conspiracy theory. His impression of the content of this covenant is that Jonathan is trying to help set up an ambush. He says this two times, first in verse 8, and then he says it again to Ahimelech. Why did you not tell me that David was setting up an ambush against me? In other words, when I go out unsuspecting, David might come out and surprise attack me and kill me. Now, is that true? No, David has no intention of killing Saul. In fact, in the next two, uh, two of the next three chapters, chapters 24, actually, uh, farther on down the road, chapter 24 and chapter 26, David's going to have an opportunity to come into close contact with Saul. One, when he was in the cave, and then the other, when, when Saul was sleeping in his own tent. David had an opportunity both times to kill him, and if that's what David's intent was, he had the weapon, he had the opportunity. The point is, he didn't have the motive, right? He didn't have any desire to kill the king. In fact, he did. He went out of his way. His own men were telling him in chapter 24, David, kill him. God is giving Saul into your hands. And David said, no, he's not. Okay, you might think that's in the interpretation of this situation, that God's doing this, but that's not what's going on at all. In fact, I, how could I put my hand against the Lord's anointed? And so apparently Saul thinks that not only is David against him to set this ambush, but Jonathan is working together with him to conspire against him so that Saul can be king. Maybe even that Jonathan is working to get the throne for himself. 
prematurely. That maybe David's kind of Jonathan's hitman so that Jonathan can, can take the throne next. Put Saul out of the way. And Saul also thinks that there is a bunch of secrecy going on in verse 8. He says for, at the beginning of the verse, For all of you have conspired against me so that there is no one who discloses to me when my son makes a covenant. So he thinks not only that David's conspiring against him, Jonathan's conspiring against him, but you now are doing it too. Because you're not telling me about this covenant that they made. They're trying to kill me. You're not telling me, so you effectively are accomplices. You're working on their side. You're not willing to tell me about the imminent danger that is out there. So, because of this paranoia, Saul somehow has to find out what's going on. And so he, he goes after his people. And here in verses 9 and 10, we see Doeg's craftiness. We were introduced to him in chapter 21, verse 7. But he was kind of a, a sketchy villain character that kind of was lurking in the shadows. We didn't really know a lot about him. We're, we're listening to the story or reading the story about David going to Ahimelech and asking for bread and for a weapon. And, and then there's this, this quick verse. Turn back to chapter 21, verse 7. I'll just show you. Now one of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord, and his name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's shepherds. Now we don't have any more information in the text of chapter 21 about Doeg and who he is. All we know is that he's an Edomite. He's, he's stuck at the temple for some reason, or the tabernacle. And that he's one of Saul's chief shepherds. That's all we know about him. And, and, and the, the author kind of puts it in there just to introduce us to the character because now he's going to come back and show us why that was important. Here in chapter 22, we see him, that is Doeg, as the chief protagonist in the story. So Saul's having his cabinet meeting with his advisors. And again, we have lurking in the background this sketchy foreign character Doeg from Eden, from Edom. And Doeg, when he sees that the, the men won't stand up and give any information, frankly because they didn't have any information, right? They didn't know anything that was going on. They didn't know of any ambushes that were being set up because there were none. And yet Doeg comes up and says, You know, Saul, I have this juicy nugget of information about your greatest enemy, and here it is. I was at the tabernacle, and I saw him there, and he was getting help from the priest. And notice what, what Doeg says here in verse 10. Notice what he, he describes happened at the tabernacle. And what we want to ask as we read this, verse 10, is, is Doeg telling the truth? Is what he's saying true? Verse 10. He, David, inquired of the Lord for him. I'm sorry. He, Ahimelech, inquired of the Lord for him, David. So Ahimelech inquired for David. He gave him provisions and he gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. So, the question that Saul wants to know is, as he hears the story, is, is Ahimelech guilty? What Doeg is saying is he is guilty. See, because you know this conspiracy that you're talking about, it's real, because I saw it, and here's, here's some evidence of it. So what we need to ask is, is Doeg telling the truth? Is it true that Ahimelech, Let's look at the second one. Did, did Ahimelech give David provisions? And the answer is yes, right? He was unsure if he should do it. You know, this is the, the priest's 
um, showbread, and, and, but, but if you guys are, are all clean, that is David, you and your men are all clean, then I can give you the bread. Look at the next one. And he gave him the sword of Goliath. Is that true? Yes. Okay, well, let's look at this first one. Now, before you answer, we're going to have to look at the rest of the text to see if what Doeg is saying is true. Because the first one here in verse 10 is, He inquired of the Lord for him. Now, if you're to read back through chapter 21, maybe you know don't remember, that's okay. Um, but, but in chapter 21, there's no mention of Ahimelech, the priest, inquiring of the Lord. Now, this would involve him using his ephod. We're going to kind of be introduced to that a little bit more here in the next couple chapters. But this ephod was kind of something that was put on the breastplate. It was connected to the priest's breastplate. And, and inside of the ephod were two probably stones, probably two, one of each color. And they would, in order to inquire of the Lord, they would ask God a yes or no question. And then they would reach in and grab one of the stones. And whichever stone came out, they would know if God was in it or not. David's going to use that ephod later here in the next couple chapters in order to find out if he should go into battle, for example, in, in a couple different situations. And so that's probably what Ahimelech is doing. Listen, is, is God going to protect me? Should I be taking these provisions? Should I take um, this sword? And so on. And whatever the case is, Doeg says that, that Ahimelech is inquiring of God. And what I would suggest to you is, although that is not recorded for us in chapter 21, what you're going to notice when we come to, to verse 15 of chapter 22 is that Ahimelech, when he is charged with these things, you gave him bread, you gave him a sword, and you inquired of the Lord for, for him. When Ahimelech is charged of these things, let's skip down there, chapter 22, verse 15. Um, uh, let's look at verse 13 because here's the charges. Saul said to him, Why have you, Ahimelech, and the son of Jesse, David, conspired against me in that you have given him bread and a sword, and have inquired of God for him. So those are the three charges. Now notice how Ahimelech responds. He, he says in verse 15, Did I just begin to inquire of God for him today? Instead of saying, you know, no, 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 wait a second, I never did that. Doeg's lying. I never, I never inquired of the Lord. I just gave him the bread and the sword. Instead he says, Has this, this isn't the first time I inquired of the Lord for him. He's just saying, this is something I've, been, I've done for a long time. It's, I'm not conspiring against you. And so here, you can go back to verse 10. What Doeg is doing is he is explaining what's happening, and I think he's actually giving the truth, but he's shading it in a way that looks like David is the enemy. Notice, he's, he's appealing to Saul's preconceived paranoia. Saul's paranoia says, David is against me. He's trying to attack that's why he uses the word ambush two times. And so notice how uh, Ahimelech, let's, or I'm sorry, Doeg in verse 10 describes it. Look again. Let's look at verse 9 because the middle of the verse says, I saw the son of Jesse. So he's saying, you know, I agree with you. This guy is a wretch. I, I don't even want to say his name either, Saul. I'm on your side. I'm going to call him the son of Jesse with you. And, and I saw him coming to Ahimelech. And then notice how he describes these things. He describes them as in a way that would sound like David is preparing for war. One of the things that, the, that a person who is going into battle would do is they would inquire of the Lord. And so he says, he inquired of the Lord. He wants to know if this ambush is going to work. That's the idea. And then next, he gave him provisions. Instead of saying he gave him something to eat, he asked for bread and he gave it to him, he says he gave him provisions. Doesn't that sound like David's ready to go out into battle? And then 
And then also, he gave him the sword of the Philistine. Instead of saying he's you know, getting something that, that could be used for, for protection, he's given him the sword so that he can attack you. So we have Saul's paranoia, Doeg's craftiness, and then third, we have Ahimelech's innocence in verses 11 through 15. And as I just showed you, Saul accuses Ahimelech of conspiring with an assassin. There is an assassin who has, who has a target on my head. And Ahimelech, the priest, you have defied your responsibility to be a priest of God. And so now I want to talk to you and your whole family. And so he sends, in verse 11, he sends for Ahimelech's whole family. Now, remember, Saul is in Gibeah. That's the capital city at that time. That's, that's where Saul was from. He's in Gibeah, and he calls for the priest to come from Nob. Nob was the place where David had gone. This city of Nob is about two miles away. And so they would have had to send a messenger out there and then bring the whole family back. And they very likely don't know what's going on. They don't know why they're coming to stand before King Saul. But they find out very quickly because in verses 12 and 13, Saul says to them, You have committed a capital crime. You have conspired with an assassin. And so now he's saying, listen, David is conspiring against me. He's setting up the ambush. Jonathan is conspiring against me. He's made a covenant with David so that it could happen. My own servants are conspiring against me, right? Verses 7 and 8. They haven't told me what's going on. They know, but they're not telling me. And now the priests of God are conspiring against me. They're actually aiding and abetting a criminal. Someone who's ready to take off my head. And so Saul basically has this feeling that everyone hates him. Well, Ahimelech defends David's integrity on the basis he does two things here in his response. First, he, he defends David in verse 14, and then he defends himself in verse 15. First, he defends David on the basis of four realities. He says in verse 14, And who among your servants is as faithful as David, even the king's son-in-law, who is captain over your guard and is honored in your house? So let's see if we can see these four realities. First, David is your faithful servant. You see that? Who among your servants is as faithful? Is there someone more faithful than David, King Saul? Secondly, he is your family, right? He is your son-in-law. Thirdly, he is captain over your guard. Why would he turn against you? And then Finally, he is honored in your house. Right? Everybody else holds him in high regard. It's just you, King Saul. So why would David conspire to, to take your life? So he defends David's integrity. And then in verse 15, Ahimelech defends his own integrity and begs for justice. In the first part of the verse, he defends his own integrity. He says, Did I just begin to inquire of God for him today? Far be it from me. No, it is not true. This is not the first time that I inquired of God for him. And then he begs for justice. I don't say beg for mercy because mercy would be given to someone who doesn't deserve it. Ahimelech actually deserves justice here, doesn't he? He deserves to be set free because he hasn't done anything. And so he says to Saul, don't do anything. I don't know anything about this ambush that you're talking about. Notice the second part of verse 15. Do not let the king impute anything to his servant or to any of the household of my father. You're starting to realize that I realize why you called all my family here. You're going to slaughter us all. And he says, for your servant knows nothing at all of this whole affair. All this talk about conspiracy and ambush and David being your enemy, I don't know anything about it, King Saul. 
All I know is that David came to me. I helped him. I inquired of the Lord for him, but that wasn't the first time I did it. And then in verses 16 through 19, we see Saul's failed leadership. Saul's failed leadership. Here, Saul orders the death of the priest and his family in verses 16 and 17. He treats this city that is occupied by priests, the city of Nob, he he treats it like an enemy city. And so he calls for complete destruction of everything. You see that in verse 16? You shall surely die, you and all your father's household. We're going to see later that Doeg actually kills all the animals as well. And, and so what we have here is Saul treating this like an enemy city that's destined for, that des- that's deserving of destruction. Now, does this sound ironic to any of you? For Saul to attack an innocent city like Nob in comparison to what God told him to do with Ahimelech, or I'm sorry, with, with Amalek, the Amalekites, in chapter 15. God said, you shall destroy every single creature in that city because they are guilty. And yet, what did Saul do? He would not utterly destroy the city. He spared the king. He spared some animals, supposedly for sacrifice. You see where Saul's heart is? When God's interests are in view, Saul fails to obey. He fails to destroy the whole city, Amalek. Chapter 15. But when Saul's interests are in view, then Saul has no problem destroying the entire city. And if you think that's bad enough, consider that the town of Nob is in the tribe of Benjamin. So if you were to look on your map, you'd be able to see Nob in the tribe of Benjamin. So that Saul is not only killing, just, he's not just killing Israelites here, he's killing people from his own tribe. The Benjamites. Remember how he appealed to his own men? Oh, Benjamites! How can you conspire against me? The truth is is that the wicked, if not stopped by the power of God, will grow worse and worse in their cruelty because they wink at evil, they imagine these conspiracies that are going on, and then they destroy innocent people for the sake of their own reputation. And to the exclusion of what God desires. And the second part of verse, so, so Saul calls for this killing, this massacre. And notice what his servants do at the second part of verse 17. But the servants of the king were not willing to put forth their hands to attack the priests of the Lord. Saul here loses credibility with his closest servants. He's, Saul has made a decisive move. He's evaluated their actions, Ahimelech specifically, but but his whole family, their actions as unjust. And yet his servants are saying, we're not going to do it. We are not going to kill these innocent people. We have seen this court proceeding. We see what's going on. These people are innocent. And in the process, Saul actually is losing credibility with his own followers because he's acting on the basis of paranoia, of, of evil. They look at the situation, the servants do, and, and see that this is an arbitra- arbitrary evil choice. They know that Jonathan's not seeking to kill Saul. 
They know that, that David was not seeking to kill Saul. They know that they were not withholding information from Saul. They know that the priests were innocent in helping David. And they know that it would be wrong for them to follow through on Saul's pursuit of reprobation. And so, who steps up in their place? Who's going to kill these men? Well, verses 18 and 19 show us that Doeg does. The king said to Doeg, Now you turn and attack the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned around and attacked the priests. And he killed that day 85 men who wore the linen ephod. And he struck Nob, the city of the priests, with the edge of the sword, both men and women, children and infants, also oxen, donkeys, and sheep. He struck with the edge of the sword. Who is left to be loyal to this wicked king? His best servants are not there. His own servants, his his trusted advisors are not giving him information. His priests apparently have betrayed him. Allegedly have betrayed him. Only the, the only person to step up and obey King Saul here is Doeg, the foreigner. And so Doeg carries out this massacre including all the priests and their families, their children, even the infants, and also the animals. The truth is that that there are two men who are still loyal to Saul, and it's not two people that he would expect. It's, it's Jonathan and David. People who he has really mistreated for months and probably years in, in charging them with things that aren't true and yet they still remain loyal to Him. Isn't this amazing? They honor this man because He has been placed in authority over them even though He is evil. And yet they're still loyal to Him. So this foreigner steps up and slaughters the priest in the place of those who would not. So, first, the enemies of God attack without mercy. And then last, God protects His people without fail. In this case, God protects His people through mutual protection. That is, that the David here is going to step up and protect the priest who, who survives. There's one priest who gets away. And the priest is actually going to serve as a means to protect David. He's going to serve as a way that God is going to use this man to protect David. So while we read a verse like 19 and see the great tragedy that has taken place in this family of Ahimelech, there is one who escapes. Verse 20, But one son of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. Abiathar is in the priestly line, and Ahitub is a priest that will help protect David in the years ahead as he inquires of God regarding God's will. And David's going to make a promise here to take responsibility for this priest and, and be willing to protect him. And this relationship is going to go on throughout David's life. Now, in the time of, if you know the rest of the story, if you know some more of the history of Israel, you know that Abiathar will later be deposed by Solomon for conspiring with Adonijah to become king. Adonijah is going to try to overthrow Solomon early in his reign, try to say, hey, listen, I'm... I should be the king. You know, I should be the rightful king to the throne of our father David. When Abiathar sides with Adonijah, 
Solomon deposes him and says, you're no longer a priest. And, and uh, a new priestly, priestly line begins. But, but for here, what we ought to recognize is that God is using this man who has, ex- who has escaped and at this time is a man who's seeking God's interests and he's going to use him to provide mutual protection for, for David. In verses 22 and 23, David takes responsibility for the death of the priest. Notice what he says here. The second line says, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, and I have brought about the death of every person in your father's household. David takes indirect responsibility. He didn't say, you know, I set that guy up there and I told him all what was going on and I told him to go back and tell King Saul and I eventually brought about the death. No, he says, but indirectly I am responsible because I could have prevented it. I came to the priest in a precarious situation and this sketchy character, villain character, standing off in the background and I didn't do anything. I knew that he heard and saw what was going on and I didn't do anything. What could he have done? I'm not sure. Maybe, maybe he could have killed Doeg there. I'm not sure if that's what God would have wanted. Or maybe he could have brought the priests along with him into hiding, knowing that Saul would be after them. But whatever the case is, David, David recognizes that he carries some responsibility for the death of these priests. And so, in a moment of humility here, at verse 23, David agrees to protect this man and his family. Stay with me. Do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. For you're safe with me. When I say his family, I'm saying his future family because at this point he has no family. Let me just encourage you this week to read Psalm 52. Psalm 52. This is a psalm that was written while he was being um, charged by Doeg, while he was um, trying to flee from God following this event. So Psalm 52. And see how David responds in the time of, of trouble. Two principles to consider tonight. Number one, the wicked isolate themselves from those who can provide for them the greatest benefit. One of the great lies of Satan is that we can, we will be fine if we're alone. We're better off if we're alone. You know, it's not... We don't need to join the church. We don't need to, to have a group of believers who are watching out over our soul. They just they end up getting too much into our business. Right? I'm better off if I just kinda yeah, I, I can learn from the word, I can I can read the word, I can sing, that's okay, but but I don't want to commit myself to any body of believers. And and that is a lie of Satan because you were never meant to live the Christian life alone. There is great danger. In, in isolation. And, and what the wicked do, like Saul, is he continues to isolate himself more and more from the people who provide for him the greatest benefit. Saul here alienates himself from David, Israel's great champion. If anybody could protect Israel, it was David. And yet Saul makes him his greatest enemy. Saul alienates himself from his own son. Right? You conspired with David. You're trying to set up this ambush against me. Saul alienates himself from Samuel. Right? The prophet. Samuel is there. He's with him. He's, he's helping him along the way. And then Saul, Samuel says, I'm done with you. You have no desire to obey God. You only want to do partial obedience. And so now he loses the prophet. And here, he kills the priests. So he alienates himself from the priesthood as well. And what I would suggest to you, in doing so, in, as he's 
alienating himself from more and more people, he's actually alienating himself from God, from the people that who would protect him, who would point him toward the truth. Sure, Saul has great power at his disposal, but he's also in a greater state of desperation than he's ever been before. He needs good people around him who will point him to the truth. And one of the great benefits of of a body of believers is that we can have people around us who are watching over our souls. In fact, one of my responsibilities as your pastor is to watch over your soul. Hebrews 13, 17. And so you get that benefit when you come to this church. That that I will be praying for you. That I will be watching your life and helping you when I see that that, things are starting to get off track. And you know, we as believers have that responsibility as well because... Part of the purity of the church is dependent upon we believers, upon us believers, watching over one another and caring for the purity that's in the church, both in doctrine and in practice, because we're concerned about the glory of Christ. We recognize that how we live, both in this place and apart from this place, affects God's glory. It affects how Christ is viewed in this world. And so we covenant ourselves together within this congregation to say, hey, listen, I can't do this on my own. I need other believers. And I need to be holding other other believers accountable as well. There's great danger in isolating yourself from people who can provide for you the greatest benefit. And God, I believe, has set up an ordained structure by which you can benefit. Second principle to consider is that there is no life that is lonelier than a life without God. There is nothing more lonely than living a life without God. Saul has already lost the Holy Spirit in chapter 14. Chapter 14, I think it is, yeah. Now he loses the priesthood. And in his pursuit, in his pursuit of pursuing what he thinks is most important, his kingdom, his authority, his power, and the praise of the people, he in the process destroys the only means that he has to atone for his sins and to hear from God. And instead, what happens? Instead of the priesthood being right there, local, right there for Saul to go to anytime he had a, a question about what he should do in battle. Anytime he needed to ask for forgiveness for his sins, he could go right there, two miles away, right to the priesthood. Now where where is the priesthood? Well, that part of it's all gone, but there's actually one part of the priesthood that still remains. And in the stories ahead, we're going to see that it actually becomes, for David, like a traveling priesthood. That he becomes an advisor for David. That is, that God is actually showing himself strong through this priesthood. How is this all going to work out in the months and years ahead? Well, in, in, if you consider the contrast between Saul and David in this chase, this is going to take up the rest of Saul's life. Saul is pursuing David without the help of God. He's all alone. He's jealous and he's paranoid. And David is fleeing from... So David is, is the victim here. He's the mouse. And he's fleeing from Saul with the help of God. And, and the, the help that he has is not Samuel. Samuel's kind of in a retired state, so to speak. 
But, but he has this prophet Gad who's traveling along with him, and now a priest, Abiathar. And so, in a sense, you would think, well, Saul has the upper hand. He has all the men. We're going to see, I think, next week or the week after, that he's going to have like 20,000, 30,000 men to David's 600. So you would think Saul would have the upper hand, but here's the truth. David has God. David has a voice from God through Gad, the prophet, and he has the priest from God. How much do we hurt ourselves when we fail to trust in God and His plan? You know, sometimes the, the Christian life can be so complex, but I think sometimes it can be so simple that He gives us simple commands to obey. And yet we look at our situation and say, well, I don't see how that could benefit me, so I'm not going to obey you. And so we either partially obey or we don't obey at all because we want to pursue our greatest pleasure, like for Saul, this kingdom and maintaining it. And what happens is as we come to grip tighter and tighter this idol, this, this thing that we've come to love most, it actually causes us to become paranoid about losing that thing that we want. And so we're constantly looking over our shoulder like someone's going to take this from me at any time. For Saul, it was his kingdom and dynasty. And so that when this passion is threatened to be taken away, this idol that we've set up, we, we do what Saul does. We scheme and connive and we destroy relationships. And we do whatever is in our power in order to get what we want or to maintain what we already have. And in doing so, we lose the very structures and the strongholds that God has set up to protect and help us. And then we come on the other side of, of, our, of our idolatry and we look at all the consequences that we face and we wonder why. And I think it's as simple as we failed to trust and obey. We lose all the structures and strongholds that God has set up. The way that we guard against the self-destruction and apostasy that we see in the life of Saul is by clinging to God by faith. So, so don't wait until you get to a point where, wow, I'm all alone. You know, I, I've burned all of my bridges. Don't wait until that time. Instead, we need to, to recognize that we need to cling to God by faith now. We need to persevere until the end. One of the great structures that God has established, as I've mentioned, to, to protect us from destruction is the local church. That God has gifted you and me with a group of believers who have agreed together to follow Jesus all the way until death. And they've agreed to help keep us on that same path. And they've agreed to remove us from this place when we start to stray. Or when we, we unrepentantly stray, I should say. So here's the hope that we have today. Sure, the enemies may attack us relentlessly, but don't miss God's hand in all your circumstances. God's mercy never ends, and as long as you continue in the faith, you will never be without mercy. Yes, the opposition will come, but you can be sure that God will be with you all the way until the end. Do you trust Him in that? Let's pray. Father, we pray for Your mercy. 
or we see ourselves in David in that certainly there have been times in life when we have been mistreated or we have uh, had wrong motives applied to to what we have done. So we, we see ourselves in David. But, but Lord, I'm ashamed to say that I also see myself in Saul as well. That there are times when when the things of this life become so shiny and so attractive to me that, that I can't bear to lose them. And so to the exclusion of You and all the structures that You've set up, I, I pursue those things that You hate. Or pursue those things which actually were meant to be gifts. They were meant to be used as a means to praise You. Instead, I turned it into something that, that was opposed to You, that, w- that was exalted over You in my life. So, Lord, for that, I ask for forgiveness. I ask that you would, would strengthen me for, for the task ahead. I pray that you would strengthen believers here in the same way. Help us to see the idols to which we grip, to, to which we hold tightly and, and don't want to let go. And we, we bite and connive and, and do whatever it takes in order to protect what we think is most important. Lord, help us to have you at the center of all that we do and not tear down the very structures that You've set up to protect us. Because we don't ever want to come to a day when we are without You. There is no lonelier place to be. So Lord, tonight we are warned uh, not to turn away from You, but we're also reminded of Your grace and how You hold us tightly to Yourself. How You promised to, to keep us until the end. And so Lord, expose to us our sin tonight. And this week, help us to see where we are failing and then help us to know how to respond with confession and repentance. Lord, we need your help. And so guide us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.